Uh, so I'm joined here today with Mark Rickmeyer. He's the CEO of TXI, which is a product innovation firm uh, delivering custom software solutions to companies like Tyson Foods, uh, Discover AccuWeather, and others. We're in a very similar space as, as well uh, mm-hmm. you know, with the company I run. Um, Mark is also a founder of the Kermit uh, Collective, which is a community of software competitor companies. Um who share his passion for doing great work and effectively scale an organization. Um, and he's also been frequently quoted in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and the Fast Company on changes in the software development industry and regularly contributes into Chicago's uh, Forbes Council. So, Mark, a pleasure to have you. Uh, I'm really excited for this episode. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Awesome, awesome. So, let me kick it off. Um, in many ways, I think you're the perfect kind of uh, guest speaker for our show because our theme that we're really focusing on now is the ugly side of growth. Um, so when you hear someone say it, what is the, kind of the first thing that comes to mind to you as a CEO? So the ugly side of growth, I think, is the unintentional side of growth. Sometimes there's this pursuit of growth at all costs or growth just for growth's sake. Uh, and when not done, and sometimes that's because there's venture capital at your back or people pushing for other kinds of returns. Uh, But when I think of that phrase, the ugly side, you think of like the deep underbelly side of growth, which means you're doing something for the pursuit of growth as its own pursuit without intentionally examining what that does to your customer experience, the quality of your work, to your employee experience, the culture of your organization. And that growth, if unchecked or not thought about intentionally, can lead to lots of unintended consequences around uh, customer retention and employee retention all in the pursuit of growth is this great this great thing so i think the ugly side is uh sometimes if that is the only metric by which you are measuring success uh you'll probably experience lots of churn either in the customer or employee side of your business uh, which makes that growth really expensive and so i would say expensive unintentional growth is ugly that makes your business <laughs> a lot harder perfect and uh that's a question to throw out there. I'm sure you're seeing this now in the market in the present time with um, the perspective that investors and VCs have towards um, businesses which they're considering in in m- many ways. I think over the years, it was always about growth, growth, growth. Mm-hmm. Like That's like the main metrics, right? But now with everything that's happening in the market, you know, everybody's a bit more cautious, which happens in a downturn. But now it's all about sustainability and being uh, able to have a clear path to being able to get to profitability and self-sustainability as like a, you know, a concept. Yeah. So resilience, I think, is the thing that people should be pursuing more than growth. Exactly. Yeah. And so in, in your current like, recent experiences, what have you seen um, or along this theme? What have you seen happen? Uh, with this new kind of mindset being in place in, in the businesses that you work with? I think, again, the, the word resilient, I think, is an interesting business because I think those that are focusing on maintaining a resilient business are in the long term going to outperform. Uh, they are considering how, I mean, so much is changing on the employee experience side as companies are going to be more distributed, for example, um, has a huge impact on company culture and retention, uh, the quality of the service of the work you provide. And that also obviously impacts people's customers and their and their revenue. Um, and so I feel that those companies that are really investing, particularly in the employee experience, will outperform because they'll be able to build 
a resilient business that'll be capable of handling some of these massive changes that are happening and swings either in demand or, you know, earlier this year, it was demand. Uh, no one was worried about sales. Everyone was worried about recruiting. It was just business was so hot. Investments and money was so free flowing that people were trying to grow. It felt like at all costs. And uh, now, of course, there's the pendulum swinging quite the opposite way. Um, and I think there was, you know, at the beginning of the year, the topic of, of, of conversation was just the great resignation, people leaving because they could no longer stomach what their businesses were doing. They were trying to go after uh, a business that had a purpose and a value system that matched their own. And I think the companies that are investing in that and understand that need are going to be the ones who outperform. There's an element to a resilient business, which is more, I think, than the top and bottom line that actually factor in what employees are looking for and what customers are looking for from, you know, from their own experience, what it means to deliver good work. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think there's an element, the companies I really respect, the ones I think that are performing that will be stable and secure when you have these wild changes in the market are those that are really focusing on resiliency as the, as the primary goal, as opposed to growth, 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 like just, just the top line revenue numbers. Awesome. And, and before we keep going, just, you know, if you could just share with the audience who's going to be listening a little bit about what TXI is about and how long you've been doing it for. Sure. Um, so TXI, as you said, is a product innovation firm, uh, which is a fancy way of saying we help our clients think through new opportunities for their business and then have the teams that are capable of taking those concepts and ideas and creating digital products to, uh, to bring to market. So think about chatbots or web applications, mobile applications, IoT uh, integrations, things like that. Um, and we call it TXI because uh, the three things we always talk about are technology, experience, and innovation. And so it's really the things we care most about are the things we are able to help our, our clients with. We've been doing that for about 20 years. We just hit our 20th anniversary. I've been there for 11 years, uh, seeing this journey grow and helping to uh, work with different kinds of clients and take on different challenges, uh, but also to do a lot of work in the software community to try to find a way to create that resilient business. Um, so lots of uh, learnings and, and ideas from from direct competitors. And that's where you get into that idea of the, the Kermit Collective, which we'll talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's interesting. I th um, so you joined the company uh, 11 years ago. So before it was founded, was the company doing something differently before or did you come on on board to kind of like scale or write the ship or whatever. Yeah, um, it was funny. So I was working for a larger consultancy uh, called ThoughtWorks and was living. I had the, I had this amazing opportunity to open up the Germany office and I had lived previously in India and Australia and England, the UK and, and traveled all over the world with this company. This is finally my opportunity to open up my own office and really help to grow that. And the day, literally the day I found out I got the nod to open Germany was the day that my wife found out she was pregnant. So I came home with what like I thought was going to be the big news of the day. And she's like, hmm, okay. you'd think that, but I have a news as well. Uh, yeah. So I lost that bet. Um, and that became a search for me to get off the road and to be more present in my own hometown, your family. So I made the, the, the shift and I joined TXI because I found this company that had incredibly solid bones, really good values and delivered really great work. And they were looking to grow and scale, which is the kind of opportunity I was looking for to uh, leave I would say larger organizations as a as a doer and step in as an owner and help to really grow and scale something that could that could be mine and something I could help with. So I joined as as the COO, helping to grow and scale the operations, um, both in terms of delivery, recruiting, sales, and then took on the CEO role about five years into it. Oh wow! Okay, and so when when you joined, 
you know, how big was the team, the company, and were there specific services that you're doing then that you are now doing now? Uh, or, or, has, weren't it, doing now that you are yeah, doing now? Yeah, no, so it has been an evolution for sure. Um, when I joined, uh, there were probably about 15, 25 people in that kind of range, plus or minus contractors. Um, and it was a consultancy that was always thought of itself, started off as a strategy company, long before it did development, was helping to provide advice to, to clients. Think of us as a, a digital consigliere of sorts, or like a CTO service for hire. How do you think about technology? How do you want to leverage that uh, knowledge to grow a roadmap and a path forward? But didn't do, in the early, early days, didn't do a lot of development. That started to add on as you build a relationship with that customer and you're building that trust. It's hard when they say, we've got this great idea. Can you help us build it? And your answer is no, uh, we're a strategy company. Go hire developers. Like that's That erodes the trust that you're building. And so when I got there, the company had really grown out the development team and had been building more of the development services, both in dev and DevOps and being able to host and monitor and, and provide stability for the applications in production. Um, but if I'm honest, the majority of the things that we had delivered at that time, if I think about the products we had made and the work we had done, looked like they were designed by a bunch of developers because they were designed by a bunch of developers. Like we didn't, the concept of design didn't exist quite yet. Uh, and so as I joined, some of the new service offerings we started to think about were adding in uh, design, uh, usability, accessibility, you know, UX, UI, uh, as well as design thinking and product uh, philosophy into like how we build things. And so uh, I think the first 10 years, maybe before I got there, were all about how do you build the thing right? Agile practices, scalability, testing, development, best practices. Uh, and then, I mean, the last 10 years have been adding on to that that good foundational bedrock of, of uh, agile skills of how do I build the thing right? Now we also think about how do I build the right thing? And so this is where you see that human-centered design, design thinking, and product shaping kind of involved and the services that have been growing into that beyond uh, core technical strategy is product strategy and design. Okay. Okay. Um, and so, uh, I think you launched the Kermit collective. So uh, let's talk about that next. Um, was it weird at any point for you to launch this kind of, uh, initiative? Did it you was, feel it was like a, it was born out of a hot mess. Um, oh, so yeah. <laughs> just for context of like what this was, um, this was my first year on the job. You ready for this? This is the hardest thing I've ever done. It feels like COVID. It was a cakewalk compared to this. So uh, there's a metric in our line of work called CCR or client concentration risk. It's how many eggs do you have in one basket? And uh, just for an example, for context, imagine it's 2019 or February of 2020 and your biggest client is Carnival Cruise Line. Like, you you, you know, if you have 70% of your revenue there, you'd be really hurting in about two months. Uh, you get worried whenever you have more than about like 18 or 20% of your revenue in a single area. And at that time we had about 50 some odd percent of our revenue with a single client that was not in a good, a healthy relationship. We were establishing our, our company values to talk about work-life balance, to talk about the ability to learn new technologies uh, and to be able to grow your career. And yet we had the vast majority of our uh, opportunities with one client that was always pushing for nights and weekend speeds, never allowing us to refactor and invest in the technology. And whenever we would complain and say, hey, we're going to lose people, their mantra was basically, eh, hire new people. Uh, it was totally incompatible with mm -hmm. where we wanted to take our business. And so we made the decision to part ways with our biggest client and rebuild that entire, basically, portfolio. And so while it's a 20-year-old business, in many ways, it's a 10-year-old business because we had to redo everything. 
And I had just moved here from Germany, did not know anybody in the Chicago office, Chicago market, didn't know much about small mid-market businesses. And so I started reaching out to some of my direct competitors in Chicago. We'd get together for greasy eggs and just talk shop about what's going on. I had so much to learn around running a small business, but I also had a lot to contribute about how to grow a business, things I had seen from my previous role. Um, and so we started these kind of friendly you know, conversations around how to grow and scale. And I saw so much value from that, that I went back to, to my partners and said, I'd like $50,000 to go put on a conference to make our competitors better, uh, which got like some weird looks. Uh, but what we started seeing was the value of teaching and, and giving feedback what we knew how to do, but then asking bluntly of like, can you teach me back this thing that I don't know how to do? Um, there was a, there's a real value in what we called cooperation uh, or cooperating with your, your competition and, and seeing the value of that. A lot of times you'll see, you know, people like you and I will be in Vistage groups or CEO peer groups, and they're always very careful to make sure there are not competitors there. There's value to that. You get a, a wide spectrum of insight across the entire industry, but man, it is sometimes really nice to sit down with someone who knows exactly what you're talking about. Their business is very similar. They have similar values, similar challenges, similar opportunities. And when you talk about the complexity of utilization and staffing or challenges of diversity in your hiring pipeline, like they know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and so that year I reached out to some of the best firms that I knew of in the industry and said, you may know of me, you may not, but I think there's a big benefit to us getting together, even though we are competitors to share ideas and concepts. Sometimes they were in different markets, so there wasn't that much competition. Sometimes they were in the exact same market and really tried to encourage this, the value of, of leaning into cooperation. Um, years later, Simon Sinek would write a book called The Infinite Game about how businesses should be running their philosophies. And he calls his competition worthy rivals, not someone to crush or to beat, but someone to learn from, to be challenged by. Uh, and he really sees uh, them as, as worthy rivals as opposed to like competition. I, that really spoke uh, to me as I was reading you know, his book and thinking about his philosophy around that. So we rented uh, a house and flew everyone in and said, we're going to get together and talk about how, how to run a business and how to build a more resilient business, not just for the customer experience and the services we provide, but for the employee experiences, how we can grow and, and support our people. And that first year, it was weird. Like a whole bunch of competitors showing up in a room be like, what are we doing here? Uh, I compete with you in recruiting. <laughs> we're going after the same people. I recruit, I compete with you in sales. We go after each, you know, sometimes the same kind of some clients, but each of us saw the value in learning from each other where we could and sharing ideas. And the only commitment we had in that first year was if someone picks up the bat phone and calls you and says, hey, I need advice, you got to get back to them in 24 hours. And that's it. No need, you don't need to share financials. You don't have to get anything that you think is too private, uh, but it does allow us to be able to call for advice. And from those humble beginnings of, if I call you for advice, please get back to me, has borne this uh, community that we now call the, the Kermit Collective, this collective of companies that are at the top of their game in the industry that have a high trust back and forth with other organizations that collaborate on ideas, uh, that help people grow through these organizational stages. Um, uh, I was talking to one recently that's trying to launch their very first advisory board, something I've done and I can tell them, here's how you go about doing that. In other cases, sometimes trying to uh, open an office in a new city, something I've not done. And so I can ask them, hey, how have you done that in the US and what does that look like? Uh, to be able to have that kind of direct input has been so valuable. And yeah, we are competitors, but we're also worthy rivals. And I think that value of leaning into cooperation has been a huge 
support for our organization through recessions and through downtimes and through needed advice. Uh, so while my main job is running TXI, a uh, 70 uh, person company uh, focusing on software, my other job is running this community and trying to in build that sense of trust between competitors, but for the goal of each of us getting inspiration and knowledge. No, I, I love that. And uh, I have a very similar kind of mindset, just quickly, like when, when we were living in, in Toronto, um, I joined part of this Toronto agency um, Slack community. Mm -hmm. And we used to have monthly get togethers and, um, it was like a breath of fresh air, like the amount of, uh, transparency we all shared with each other, like similar pain points and stuff like that. But some people were, um, hesitant about sharing. And I think, um, the, the pain I had as an agency kind of starting out in the early stages was, um, there's a stigma associated to kind of agency work in certain occasions in the sense that when I had conversations with certain clients, like, oh yeah, we worked with this company, but they burned us. So like now we have this reservation. And so I thought, well, what's the best way to like ensure there's better quality in terms of, you know, agencies and other kind of competitors, like worthy rivals, as you said, mm -hmm. is to actually like get other people to be at a better level, right? So that there's less shit that happens in the industry where, we then have the stigma associated when we try to have conversations with people because like, oh yeah, you know, I had a bad experience. And, uh, and there's always things you don't do. Uh, like in my experience that like we have a very solid uh, core team around mobile and web work, but like we, we're not a Microsoft shop. So someone recently came to us and said, we really need a bunch of .NET help uh, in, in, in Europe. And we have a strong team that's able to help in Europe, but not there. And so now I can say, you know what, I've got an entire collective of organizations who all also have really good people. I know we share values and we share a lot in common. Like, let me see if I can go find. And within about four hours, I had lined up a couple people that could be great partners for them. And so it's, it's to my benefit to be able to make sure that those companies have high employee retention, that those companies do things really well. Cause like they're the ones I'm going to when I need help, when I need advice. Exactly. Um, it's been, so yeah, that's one of the things I think I'm I think most proud of um, that when we first get together, because you know, you're right, it's a little awkward, right? It's a little hard to know. And I think people are concerned about that. Our opening day, whenever we get together, is always to talk about the biggest mistake, the biggest failure you've made in your business since the last time we got together. Because I find that if you can be that open and, and vulnerable, uh, it also allows to build connections much faster. It's much different if everyone's coming out kind of chest thumping about how great their business is and how smart they are and all the things they've done. Uh, <laughs> but if you can come in and say, man, I messed up in a blue half a million dollar lead or I, you know, I had a huge retention problem and people left like crazy. These are hard things to say, yeah. but no one understands more than these people do. Uh, and if you can build that trust that people can do that openly and be vulnerable, then I think people can say, oh, man, that happened to me too. Uh, or here's how I got past it. Like we fired our biggest client and I had to rebuild the whole business. That was a nightmare. Um, and being able to learn from that experience, I only did that because I got input from others. No, I don't know. It's, it's so true. Um, well, I see some questions about scale sure. and you know what you did. So um, with TXI specifically, what were some of the key lessons you learned through about scaling software service companies? So before, think about that moment in time when we had uh, reached a level of scale and now we fired our biggest client. So half our revenue goes out the door. Most of the profit, most of the margin goes out the door. 
almost the entire sales pipeline goes out the door. So we needed to rescale a lot of part of the business because we didn't want to do any layoffs. We wanted to keep growing the business when that happened. Um, and I used to joke that the company was entirely powered by red wine and Thai food. That after work, we'd order a bunch of food in, open a bottle of wine and say, great, what's broken? Recruiting? Fine. We're all going to talk about recruiting for a while. It was really inclusive. It just wasn't very effective. Uh, and so one of the ways we started scaling the business by was being much more intentional about how we ran the business. We had these great playbooks and ways of running projects for the agile process and roles and things like that. We needed to be that disciplined in how we made decisions and build accountability within the team. So we rolled out a tool called uh, a process rather called EOS or the entrepreneurial operating system. And I don't think it's like the silver bullet. I think it is a silver bullet. Like it's a way of organizing and building that accountability. And they had some pretty strong uh, methods for how you build a team, who should be in the leadership team, how they should meet, how often they should meet, what you should talk about. It was valuable to give us some kind of playbook to be able to build some of that. And we found that one of their philosophies, have you heard about the whole like rocks concept? Before. No. So uh, this is, uh, I don't think it ever happened, but like, this is a story of a Harvard professor giving this lecture to his students where there's a big uh, vase or a vase and he puts some big sized rocks in there until it's all the way full. And he says, is this full? And all the students are like, yeah, there's nothing else you can fit in there. And then he pours a bunch of pebbles and they all kind of sift in the cracks and the students, okay, well, okay, now it's full. And then he pours in a cup of sand and that fills at the very tip top and they're like, okay, we get it. It's full now. And he's like, nothing else can go in there. And of course, he pulls a glass of water in and that still fits. And he said, now second glass uh, puts out another vase and he pours in the water, the sand, the pebbles, and then tries to put the big rocks in, which of course they don't fit. And the metaphor is you have to be very intentional about the big things you want to get done because the little shit will always take up all the room. Uh, and the metaphor was like, try to make space for that. One of the mantras of EOS is go slow to go fast make sure you prioritize the most important things get those things done the urgent will always crowd out the important the little shit will always take up space um and so those are uh, there are some great philosophical learnings from the eos process that really helped us to grow and scale the business and uh it's based on the book called traction and pun intended it got us traction in our work to increase our, our profitability, our headcount, our, you know, our, our deal size, like a lot of that really started clicking. Once as an operations team, we started figuring ourselves out a bit better. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, when you said, when you started telling the story, I'm like, yes, I've heard of this. It's a, it's a great, it's a great example. Um, what, uh, what were some of the biggest or like most glaring challenges of scaling the company that you had to overcome? We've had, I think, um, two big things that hit us in the last two years, maybe three years, um, that were difficult. And I was on the wrong side of history here. So I'm gonna give credit to the team that pointed at me where I was wrong. Um, when we were smaller, we were a very proudly flat organization. I liked that. I liked that I knew, I know everyone knew each other rather well. We had uh, not a lot of hierarchy. There wasn't a lot of uh, middle managers, like there was direct access to the CEO whenever you wanted it. And I think, well, elements of that were still true. It started to really break down as we were thinking about how do we provide good growth plans for our people, equitable growth plans. Um, when you're smaller and you all work together, it's very easy to say this person's senior and this person's uh, a consultant, this person's an associate. But as you get bigger and you're like, well, wait, why did this person become senior? Why did they get a promotion? Why, why not me? And what happens, at least often in the U.S., is that those who are most 
come from most most historical privilege feel the most comfortable promoting themselves and asking for raises and asking for promotions. And so what you'll find is that traditionally white men will be performing at an incompensated level, not because it's justified, but because they're the ones putting themselves out there and saying, hey, I think I'm ready for this. And when you don't have any of that written down, when you don't provide a more structured for feedback and for growth, you can see that uh, difference in your employee experience. And so the biggest thing we learned in scaling our business was as we did uh, some work in our DEI space or diversity, equity, inclusion space, this concept of taking things that are very implicit, like what success looks like and making it very explicit and writing it down. And for us, that meant trying to articulate the growth path from being a consultant to a senior, to a lead, to a principal. And uh, so a couple of things we got wrong. One is we did it wrong. It was the right intentions, but when we wrote it, it looked like a very linear path. So to become, to ultimately grow, when we first wrote it down, you either had to become the CTO, and there's only one of those, or have to become a salesperson, which most delivery people do not want to be. Um, so if you can't make it rain and you can't be in the leadership team, there's no word, there's no other growth path, basically. Um, and that was very limiting because humans don't work that way. Humans have different things they're excited about. Some want to go really deep on the technology side or design side. Others like to focus more on influence and their ability to either, you know, influence clients or influence the market or become a thought leader and do other things. Very rarely does everyone follow the exact same track. And so having a very linear process uh, was totally broken and it really frustrated people. It was born out of the right intentions to provide more transparency and equity in our growth uh, decision making, but it was done poorly. And so I think one of the things we had to totally throw out was coming up with a new progression uh, that allowed for more flexibility and more autonomy in your growth path to say, this is how I want to grow and this is the value I think I can bring. The second thing that totally didn't scale, we had a concept of something called sponsors. Again, flat organization, proudly so didn't have managers. We, we had these sponsors that were acting as an advocate in your career growth. But over time, what we realized, if we really wanted to be good at growing people, people needed more accountability for their growth, more support in their growth, more regular feedback, people to help them think through this new career grid we had designed to help think about promotion and support. And I was really pushing back on this for a while, being like, we don't need middle managers. We don't need that. We're a flat company. And when we actually started talking to people, they were asking for more support, more more growth support in their careers. And I was on the wrong side of this. And so talking to the team, we started thinking about, well, what would it look like if this developer now reported to this other developer and that developer was now accountable for growing the other one? Could we actually make managers work for us? Uh, so as we thought about scaling, we had to throw out uh, this, no this notion of being flat. We had to throw out this notion of not having job descriptions and not having a solid career progression matrix. And we had to really rethink how we think about feedback within the organization. Um, so all of the processes we had around uh, feedback, growth, mentorship, management, all of that had to be redone. Um, when you start pulling on that thread, everything kind of goes along with it. So uh, we got a lot of that wrong as we were like, it was, it worked really well when we were 25 people and it started showing its age at like 30 to 35 people. By the time we got to 50 and we were still thinking of ourselves as a 25 person organization, people were getting pretty pissed and frustrated because they could no longer get the same support that they needed. And we had a really, it took about nine months to throw everything out and redo all of it. Uh, and we're thankfully on the other side of that now. I'm now, you know, iterating and tweaking it, um, still learning a lot, but there was hard lessons around scalability that we got wrong out of the best intentions of being more equitable, but how to really challenge some of our historic assumptions of like being flat and not needing this stuff. It actually made us a much better, more resilient company by diving into it and embracing 
the changes that would help us get to that next level of growth. Amazing. And what's like the main takeaway you would want to give to other founders uh, when it, in, in a similar situation uh, that they could do early on, maybe uh, in their company's growth? I think so. The two things I really take away as CEO is one, I think it's important to always have that mantra of take the implicit things and make them very explicit. I think that helps you to write things down, to be more transparent about things like growth, options, promotions, salaries. I think that's really important. Um, and you know, we do that even within our job descriptions. Our job descriptions are insanely long. So when people apply, they know what they're going to get into. Um, mm. I think the average character limit on a LinkedIn job description is 10,000 characters and ours broke that. We're like, ours are 14, like ours are very detailed. What success looks like three months in, six months in, nine months in, two years in, what your projects will be like, how much we're going to pay you. Like we make it super transparent. And I think that is something that uh, I've learned is to make things, take the implicit, make it very explicit. I think is, is rule number one. And rule number two, as this founder or CEO, you're going to have some deeply held convictions. I did. I was wrong. I was on the wrong side of history on that. And I think it's important to have convictions loosely held and that you can actively listen for what your employee experiences really is, not what you think it is, and be willing to challenge some of the ways you've historically done things. Basically, the things that got you to one point will stop serving you. Even if they were really good for you at one point, they will stop serving you at one point and you'll need to reinvent yourself. And so the inclusive red wine and dinner, Thai food dinners we had that really made decision-making really inclusive, stopped serving us when we needed to really gain traction and, and gain more accountability in our business. And the uh, kind of small company, no manager, flat feeling worked really well until it didn't. And then we needed to think through something else. And you have to be able to let go of rituals and patterns and things that worked for you for a while, but no longer do. Um, and now I think people are starting to see that with concepts like rent, and office space, things that they've had for a long time that of course are necessary for a business to challenge some of those assumptions and say, how is this serving us going forward and be, and be willing to just openly, I guess, embrace that what got you to this point may no longer serve you going forward, which is mm -hmm. tough when you're really proud of those things that you, you know, had developed for a while. No, of course. Um, and on the, on the note about community, um, what have you learned to date about how to build the right type of company around around the community or around a community? And what would you say you need for a success for that? I think, well, two things. I think there's a, how do you build a community first? And then how can a company benefit from that community? Um, I found that the best way to build a community is with a good degree of humility, which is why we always start with that. What did you screw up the most? It allows people to really understand each other better and bring a bit more of a vulnerability and kind of hum human centric uh, level of topic of conversation. Um, and so I like, again, I embrace this idea of direct competitors collaborating. And I also embrace this idea of open vulnerability and, and sharing from a company perspective, there is so much value in being able to work with one's direct competitors, not only because it's disgusting in Chicago for 10 months of the year, so you get to go possibly go to a different city and see a different country and see how they do things, but then you get to see their best practices and their way of doing things. Um, no company is like the best at anything. I think there's always things you can learn from other companies and how they perform and how they operate. And it's such a breath of fresh air to spend a week in another company's culture to get a sense of how they do things. Um, and so the benefit to community, not only do you have 
a more resilient business because you can rely on your now competitors for insights and ideas, but sometimes you can rely on them for collaboration and pairing, maybe mentoring. Um, we've had during pandemic, I think when our sales are really strong and others were struggling, we had about 17 different people collaborating from other companies on our projects where they could learn from us. And then sometimes our sales were low and I could have my people working on other companies' projects, learning from them. That is a massive benefit, not only to a resilient business, but the learnings you all get. Uh, so I think the key takeaway for businesses in the community is to come at it with a fair amount of humility and every new opportunity for pairing, say, what can I learn from this organization? What They might do things differently, but again, challenge your own assumptions. Think about what that looks like. I think the best example I can give of that was when I was realized I was like doing something totally wrong. Um, when we, we got together as humans that got together, we'll think about a great, you know, when humans could actually get together in a room and conferences, this was back in 2015 or so. And we were doing a fun game called this or that. I don't know if you've ever played that before, but you'd stand up in the middle of the room and say, if you believe this, go to this wall. But if you believe that, go to that wall. And so you say like, if you're an Elvis fan, stand over here. If you're a Beatles fan, stand over there. And then we said, if you're still billing by the hour and tracking your revenue in 15 minute increments, stand over here. If you're not, stand over there. And the entire industry was on one side and me and one other schmuck was on the other. And we're like, what are we doing? Why are we still billing in 15 minute increments? Clearly no one else is doing this. And it was one of those moments where you like that level of, I guess, shock and confusion where I thought that's just how consulting worked and everyone else had evolved away from the hourly model was a good eye opener to be like, all right, there's something to be learned from the community here. Clearly I'm on the wrong side of this one too. Um, so I think if you can get past your own hubris and really embrace the learnings from other companies, you don't have to follow suit, but it's a shame to not learn from them. No, of course. It's, uh, I mean, in our industry, I, I would say there's probably somebody figured out a solution to most of the problems or every problem in some shape or form. So, I mean, that knowledge base is priceless, I think, in many ways. Um, and it might not work for you, but at least it gives you something to, to noodle on and think about. Exactly. Just a different perspective is is game changing. I think mm -hmm. when you have so much tunnel vision in terms of what you're doing all the time, you just can't see clearly or you can't see any other options. But there's always a solution to something is what I thought to my team. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Last question before we jump into the fireside format. Sure. I want to get your thoughts on on uh, the whole concept of do things that don't scale. Uh, when should you do it and when should you stop? We do a fair amount of things that don't scale. And I sometimes am most proudest of those. They often relate to things about the employee experience. Um, so for example, I still interview every single person before they join the company and try to get time with them before they come in to make sure that they get at least an hour with the CEO before they get to the final offer to make sure that this is a company that they are excited about, but also someone I get to know personally. That doesn't super scale as you get much bigger. Um, uh, I try to meet everyone on their first day and try to make sure we have an opportunity to connect in that first week. And as we get bigger, like that's going to get harder and harder to do the level of intentionality that we personally take around supporting individuals. Uh, we go to some pretty, you know, in-depth extremes to make sure people have connection and an opportunity to feel that belonging to an organization. I don't know that those things will scale, but it's some of the most important parts of our company and our, our employee experience is that sense of culture. And so I think we will really invest uh, probably beyond the point of it being rational in some of those things until at some point we just realize, okay, this isn't going to scale. We got to think of a new way of doing things. Um, 
but I know like the level of intentionality we take over for individual support is extremely high. And it's also helped us with things like retention, for example. Um, so, uh, it's not always super practical, but we will still consider it. Um, the best example I can give of that we had before pandemic totally changed the game. We had what I would call the best smelling office in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> we had a chef on staff. We had a kitchen built out. We'd make meals every day. You know, when you had bacon days, the whole office smelled great. The rest of the building hated us, but we had this amazing smell and clients would come in at like 1145 to find out just what was going on that day, just in time for lunch. What a, what a surprise. And when pandemic shut us down, we couldn't do that. Rather than give it up, we thought about, well, how can we still have this opportunity to break bread together, still be part of what we do? And so we basically created like a food truck existence where we would drive food around to all the employees and make sure everyone still had that sense of being taken care of and belonging. And that does not scale at all. We had people that weren't in Chicago were driving around trying to make sure the food was still hot. And eventually we realized, okay, there's other ways we can still be this inclusive belonging centered culture but you had to give up on the food concept because it just wasn't practical when people and humans couldn't congregate. Um, but we gave it a good shot for a while. Like the whole food truck concept was pretty amusing. Um, so there's, there are times when we are really hesitant, I think, to give up something that doesn't scale. Mm. And it's always because that deep employee experience is so important to us that we have to find something else we think will work better before we're willing to give it up. And sometimes we wait too long. Awesome. That's a great story. Thanks. For, that's awesome. You had a, a, a kitchen and everything that's, uh, the chef's still here. He just now does the different things. He obviously yeah. doesn't make food as much. Now he's focusing more on employee experience and he runs our onboarding program. But uh, Oh, wow. Okay. But I do miss it. I got to tell you, the, the food we had was amazing. Uh, and now I got to make my own lunch like a sucker. Like it's not something I'm used to. <laughs> okay. Awesome. All right. Let's jump into the fireside format. So uh, one to two sentence answers. All right. Try your best. Um, first question is, what would you do if your company went bankrupt? <laughs> Dark question. Uh, <laughs> do you mean like, what would I do if I won the lottery and could do something else? Or like literally, what would I do if we went bankrupt? They're probably yeah. very different things. What would you do if you went bankrupt? Drink a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'd be so upset. I'd be so sad. Honestly, I would. Do you want the honest answer? Yeah, of course. I would have a very hard time separating that from my personal sense of failure, I would take it very personally and have a hard time separating the business's bankruptcy from my inability to avoid it. And uh, that sense of failure would hit me hard and probably ruin my, like, I'd have like a really crap three months, six months. Um, uh, I would obviously try to find as many ways to first thing, protect people and give them opportunities in other companies, like using the crazy the connections we have in our company outside industry to get them places. So the first thing you would do is take care of people, get them situated elsewhere. Uh, and then I'd have a real bad six months personally. Um, I don't know how well I would take that. Okay. Now on the more positive, positive light. So what, what new benefits, behaviors, habits, anything you adopted within the last five years that have most positively impacted your life? Uh, the best thing I've done was start the concept of walk shops which is where I go uh, on long distance hikes with other leaders from around the world uh, through either like the Black Forest of Germany or the Highlands in Scotland. Um, no Wi-Fi, no Slack, no Twitter, no emails. You just have five dedicated days where you are walking with these incredibly smart people uh, and 
We have a service that will carry our bags and deliver our bags for us. You would just walk until you get to a bed and breakfast and all your bags are waiting. You have dinner together and get up the next day and go for another long days long hike. And we call it a walk shop rather than a workshop because we're walking the entire time. And that gift where of time where I'm not CEO, I'm not a dad and father of two kids. I'm just a person learning and being challenged by smart, brilliant people is the best thing I can think of. I've done for myself that gift of time. Warren Buffett always says, busy is the new stupid and giving yourself that gift of I'm going to give a week with no interruptions to just think and talk and be challenged by brilliant people. Um, best thing I've done in my career. Amazing. All right. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, okay. Last question. It's not really like a, a crazy question, but what is something I haven't asked you in this interview, but you wanted to put out there to the audience? I think one of the things I'm wrestling with right now, and I'd be curious to see how other entrepreneurs and CEOs feel about this, is the rising tension between wanting to be there with your family and wanting to run your business. They're not always compatible. Hmm. Uh, and you're hitting me in a very vulnerable moment where my oldest kid just got dropped off at camp for the first time. So she's gone and I'm looking at her empty bedroom and it's hitting me really hard to be like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm losing her. And this is just camp. When she goes to university and college and she's really gone and I'm really going to be hitting it. And these these roles that we take are all consuming. And so one of the things I'm thinking about now is how do I get more dedicated time off to be there with kiddo, to be there with family while they're still here, while I still have the summers together and think about a different relationship to work than the one I have now, which is pretty all consuming. Um, there are a few leaders I know of who've done this really well, where they're just like, I'm going to go off for a month or two months or three months and have that dedicated parent time, child time. And I've not seen many who can do that well. Yeah. So that is the thing where I would say I'm wrestling with it in this moment to think about how can I continue to support my business and create a unique experience. If I, sp I spend so much time thinking about the employee experience, and I think so much time about the customer experience. I'm now thinking about the childhood experience while I still have children because pretty soon they're going to be in college and want nothing to do with me. And I want to maximize that childhood experience. So that's one of the things I think I've been, I'm leaning into and curious to see how other leaders are digging into it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good point. And uh, just to add on that, I literally yesterday got off the phone with one of our clients who's a leader in their organization and um, he got promoted uh, uh, to taking on a much more senior role. It was a great opportunity for him, but um, he said to me something which was really interesting. Is like, in life between work and family life, you can't have stress in both. Uh, something's got to give. And he was having a lot of stress already at home with some things going on. He had this great opportunity, and you know, unfortunately, he had to let let down the the leader or like the uh, executive who was promoting him. And it's like I, I can't because this is going to give me more stress at work, and then I was going to compromise my already kind of situation at home which i need to focus on more and so he passed on the offer um and i thought that was like really uh, amazing of him because um you know a lot of people would jump on that opportunity but then he shared that he shared the story that he knows some other people who um uh prioritize at work and it really suffered for them because it led to you know a, a divorce or nasty divorce and a separation with um with their spouse and what's more important at the end of the day, right? And giving that a hard think, I think, is uh, 
is something that we should do more when considering our kind of next move or what's what are the key important things that we want to really do and think about with like the time that we have the uh the last time i took a serious chunk of time like that i had a three-month sabbatical and initially i thought oh i'll travel you know we'll go back to australia we'll go back to india and then we had our first child so we went to target we went to walmart we didn't go anywhere like it was just being able to take care of kiddo and so instead i said well i gotta do something with this gift of time and so i went back and made a list of all the courses i ever took that i really liked that i've never had a chance professionally to engage with again and found that my intro to classical music the very first year in high school was my favorite class that i never did anything else with and so i started taking during these three months i started taking courses on classical music history and learning much more about like the Baroque era and, and starting from there all the way up through about 1920 and found that it brought so much joy to my life that I started making this more regularly part of my learning, started going to the symphony more, started learning more about that. And progressively from that learning to where I am now, as I got more and more involved in those circles, um, I'm now on, on the board at Ravinia, Chicago's oldest cultural institution. It's the summer home of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and helping to bring classical music education to uh, schools all over Chicago, something I never would have done had I not taken that three months off to think about what's important in my life. What do I want to go back? What itch do I want to scratch? And I think, especially as Americans, we, we always associate value with busyness. And so when someone says, how are you like a badge of honor, we're like, Oh, I'm so tired. I'm so busy. I'm doing so much. What a terrible way to live a life. Like that's the way that you're excited about things. And I think, taking that time to step back and give yourself a gift of time to think about like, what do I want to be doing? Um, or in my case, like, what do I want to do with my children? I have a five year window before they go to college. Um, that's really what I try to try to focus. Whenever I've done that in the past, it's yielded incredible results around like in this one case, joining the board at Ravinia or with my career, being able to start things like OpsConf um, or now Kermit Collective. It, there's such a value in doing that. So that is the thing I think I'm going to try to dig into is what does my role as father look like in the next five years? And how is that compatible with my role as CEO? Amazing, amazing. Uh, Mark, that was a great episode. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. I really appreciate it. And uh, as always, thank you to our listeners for tuning in and supporting. But I think that's a wrap for for this one. <laughs> I'm glad we could explore my alcoholic tendencies of red wine, <laughs> Thai food, drinking through bankruptcy. Like, this is what a great episode this is. Uh, <laughs> this is for me, the gold. <laughs>